with me this morning. Um, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 through 49 here this morning in our study uh, in the book of Daniel and through a book that we've called, uh, it's titled Thriving uh, in Babylon. And one of the interesting things, you know, about this, uh, it's, it's a wonderful book. If you don't have it, I encourage you to get it. It speaks so much to what uh, we go through in this life. Uh, you know, we, we are living, you might say, behind enemy lines. And in doing so, you know, it's easy uh, to get caught up in the battle in a, in a negative way. And obviously the Lord has a desire to uh, teach us how we not only can, you know, make it in moments like this and the things that we're dealing with in the world today, but that is, as the title of the book explains, that we can actually thrive in moments like this and, and not just survive. You know, oftentimes, you know, as we pray with people and we meet with people throughout the course of the week, it just seems like people are just trying to hang on. You know, they're just, man, I'm just, I'm just trying to hang on. And it's that, you know, kind of the survivor mentality. And so Daniel is a great character study, and I encourage you just in your own studies, uh, is to take a look at his life as a young man, you know, who could faithfully love and serve the Lord in, in, in probably one of the most difficult situations that a person could face in life based on the culture and, um, you know, being, you know, taken away in exile to, you know, a foreign country and not being in your own home and, and, and still maintaining not only your integrity, but to look for the hand of God and to see the blessing of God in all the things that you would do. And so it's been a wonderful study for me personally. I know it has for many of you as you uh, have taken it upon yourself to really, uh, in all the studies that we do, to look at this and, and ask the Lord to help you um, understand the characteristics that you know made Daniel so successful in his own life and, and to ask the Lord to do that work in your own heart as well. We'll take a moment here and we'll pray. And I want to read this with you in uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 uh, through 49 here. And, you know, we'll go back through it a little bit here, but uh, just to get it started this morning, let's just uh, open up with a word of prayer and we'll jump into this. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you, Lord, for just the opportunity that we have to come not only to church, but Lord, to come into worship, Lord. Uh, again, as we've said, there's so many things that vie for our attention. There's so many things today. Uh, the busyness, uh, I know for our staff with, um, we've got, you know, the fireworks booth, we've got camp, we've, you know, we've got retreats coming up. There's all kinds of things on campus, classrooms and teachings and feeding people and ministering to people. And Lord, it's so easy to get caught up in the busyness of life and, and things that are really good. And yet to miss these opportunities, these God given God-ordained moments where we can just sit before you. Uh, Lord, we're kind of reminded often of Martha and Mary that, uh, Lord, we can be so busy with so many things, but like Mary, Lord, when you walked in the room, she stopped what she was doing, even in her serving, and she sat at your feet. And Lord, you said that for Mary, she had chosen the better part. And I thank you for these that are here this morning in the busyness of life and so many things that, Lord, we could do to stop and to sit at your feet today, to acknowledge you as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Lord, may you just bless this time. May you bless your people this morning. And Lord, most of all, may you be glorified in each of our lives. That, that's our greatest hope. It's our greatest prayer. 
as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we read this, you know, in, in verses 46. It's the end of, you know, chapter two here. Remember, you know, uh, Daniel has interpreted this dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And it's kind of interesting because immediately when you think about, you know, the concept of wisdom, you know, the Bible says that wisdom, you know, of the world is sensual. There's earthly wisdom. You know, we talk about knowledge. I love that expression that says knowledge is the accumulation of fact, but wisdom is the application. And so again, we live in a world and we go through this almost every week and our staff and will talk about it. Like the world's knowledge, you know, is doubling. I mean, think about this doubling, you know, within just a few days, every few days, the world's knowledge doubles. So knowledge, as Jesus said, you know, will be marked in the last days. Knowledge will increase, right? I mean, it, the ability to have knowledge, but we don't so much need knowledge. What we need is what? We need wisdom, right? And the Bible says that true wisdom doesn't come from earthly sources. True wisdom comes from God. And we see this exercised in Daniel's life. And so if you pick it up in chapter two there, at the end, it says, after this, this dream and Daniel's interpretation of it, and uh, you know, Daniel, again, is the only one who's able to interpret this dream. So God gives him the wisdom, this wisdom that comes from heaven. And, and Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges it, but look what happens when he does. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and he worshiped him, it says, and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. And at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. And, and I love that, you know, as you look at this, you know, we, we see, you know, here's a, a, you know, and wisdom has nothing to do with age. I mean, it can, you know, because there's life experience in this true, but here's Daniel is a young boy walking in wisdom. And you go, why? As I just explained, because wisdom doesn't come in the sense from books. Now we can say it comes from a book and what book would we say that it comes from? The very word of God. Amen. Yeah. And here's Daniel walking in wisdom. And so as we kind of wrap up this little series, you know, I, I titled from the book Thriving in Babylon based on Larry Osborne's book. Remember, he discussed in the book, you know, how Daniel, though he was exiled, remember the Lord was disciplining the nation of Israel because of their obedience. And God was very patient with the nation of Israel, very merciful uh, to them, uh, waiting for them to repent. And when they didn't, you know, then God, again, allowed them to be taken into captivity and uh, again, as I shared with you, their culture is far more wicked, you know, than the culture in which we live. And he did it in such a way that he served God with, you know, integrity and power. And uh, again, it, so much so that as we just read, you know, that here is this, this, this 
king who, like I said, is, is as wicked as they come. Like I said, the torture, like I said, of people to, to throw, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to throw them in a fiery furnace. And it wasn't just a fiery furnace, but it was a fiery furnace that was, what, heated seven times greater. Like, I mean, this was cruel and unusual punishment, right? And then for Daniel himself to be thrown, you know, into a lion's den, you know, what normally happened to someone if they were thrown into a lion's den, they were devoured, right? And that became sport, right? I mean, see so the wickedness that they, that, that they had. And here, you know, he is so humbled in this that he, you know, recognizes that the God who Daniel serves, you know, is a God who's worthy, a worthy of praise. And so when we look at his life, Daniel's life, he's not one that just survives, right? You know, and we're just, like I said, and we do, we go through hard things. We pray it all the time, you know, with people, Lord, just, just help me. But he actually, he actually thrived in, in this, you know, godless environment in which uh, he lived. And so it raises a question, you know, for us, how do we do it? And if you read the book or you've been with us, there's really three things that, that you know, Larry uh, Osborne drew out in his book that uh, were characteristics of Daniel's life, things that you and I need to be prayerful about and consider and desire for our own life. And, in, and three things that marked his life was hope, humility, and wisdom. And you think about that, he learned as, uh, to thrive in Babylon as he walked in hope and humility and with wisdom. And so, you know, as we looked at this, I mean, you know, Daniel was innocent. And I'd shared this with you, if you recall the very first week that, you know, sometimes we suffer not because of our own sin, but because of the sins of other people. We get caught up, you know, uh, in what is going on. And that's what basically happened, obviously, to Daniel and his friends here is that as God was judging the nation. And yet they accepted responsibility themselves. You know, the Bible says there's none righteous, right? No, not one. You can't just say, oh, well, it's all them and, and not me. Because if the truth was be told, all of us could say, if I got what I deserve and you got what you deserved, where would we all be today? In hell. It's really sin is in some sense, it's varying degrees, right? And that's what we do. I, I judge myself by my intentions, but I judge you, you know, by your actions, right? And again, all wrong in that regard. And yet, when you look at Daniel's life, I mean, Daniel never complained about this wicked king. You can't see anything in Scripture here, right, where he complains, you know, these kings that he serves under here. He doesn't whine. He never, what we see very common, it's becoming common practice in our world today, right? is a victim mentality, right? You hear that a lot, right? And, and that's part of the world, but you don't hear Daniel. He's, Daniel could be going in one sense, I, I, I didn't do anything wrong. You know, why, why is this happening to me, right? And, and we can all say that. We probably all have said that at different times in our life. But I, I shared with you, you know, in week one, you know, that something that, that Daniel understood, and I pray with all my heart that you understand this, because as you do, and as, as Daniel did, it changes everything. And, and again, we, we think of that word sovereign, but just think of it in simple terms of control. You know, and you'll hear things. I mean, I look and I'm watching this guy on, on social media the other day and he's going, you know, this is a lie that this preached from you know, pulpits. God is not in control. And so I'm listening. I go, okay, is it a play on words? And, you know, he genuinely believes that, you know, God has stepped back and, you know, the things that are happening in the world, God's not, he's, not making them happen, but does God allow them to happen? And does, is God a capitalist? And does he capitalize on everything? And you go, yes. 
That's why Paul could write, all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Not all things are good. And we see that, you know, in looking at, at Daniel's life. But one of the interesting things, and I shared with you in week one, right there from Daniel chapter one, verses one and two, this was during, it says during the, and this is Daniel, remember, he's writing this at the end of his life, looking back over his life. He's the author of this. He, this is not a diary that he's in the midst of it. He has time and what we'll talk about today, he has perspective. He's able to look back over it. And what does he recognize? He recognizes that God is sovereign and that, yes, God is in control. And that's important to know. And if you lose sight of that more than anything else, you will begin to deviate because, you know, it's that, that expression in life that one in the hand's worth what? Two in the bush, right? And so that's what happens with people. When, when you don't think that God's in control, then what do you do? You tend to take control yourself. Think about your own failings in life, your own discouragements where we've fallen, we've backslidden, or we walked away, whatever the circumstance might be. It usually begins with what? Believing that God isn't there, that God doesn't care, you know, and that he's not in control. And so we can't fall to that lie. And so here's Daniel telling us right from the very get-go in the book that bears his name in, in chapter one, verses one and two, he says, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. The Lord, that's what he said, the Lord gave him victory. You go, wait a second, he gave him victory over Israel? Over the, he says, over King Jehoiakim of Judah, and he permitted him. So again, do we see God behind this, allowing it? And you go, yes, for a purpose, not to punish, but to discipline. There's a big difference there don't have time to go into all that today, but there is. And he says, and he allowed him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and he placed them in the treasure house of his God. It's one of the reasons that God brought judgment against him. And then verse two says, the Lord again gave who? Who did the Lord give victory? Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord gave it to him. He allowed it to take place. And so this wasn't, you know, like Larry mentioned in his book, it wasn't a, a tragic triumph, you know, of evil over good. It was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's doing. And so we can't miss this, you know, from chapter one, all the way through chapter 12. What did Daniel see? It's what I pray that you see and what I see today, as we look at the world around us, that God is sovereign that God is in control. There's things that appear to be out of control, but God will gather all those things. All things do work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. The point being that God's sovereignty, it's the foundation that hope and humility and wisdom rest upon. And so we can rest in that. So we looked the first week, I'm just gonna walk you through a, a, just very, just quickly, a couple of things, you know, from each of the, the weeks, since uh, we've skipped a few along the way here, you know, we first examined hope. Okay. And what do we, what do we think about that? Um, you know, with hope and I, I shared with you, it, let me just ask you again, how many people here this morning, and if you're online, you can raise your hand at home so you can, that way you can participate with us. How many want to be more hopeful? Raise your hand. You want to, you want to be more hopeful in your life. Okay. And, and it's true. 
but what we don't want to do is we don't want to be hopeful the way that God teaches us how to be hopeful. Because if you think about this, and if you remember, you don't need to turn there, but let me read this to you. Because God wants you to be hopeful too. And then it kind of makes sense because is life getting harder? Yes. Are things getting more difficult? Yes. You know, and, and what should that do in all of our lives? It should make us more hopeful. That's the beauty, because we don't hope for what? What we do see, we hope for what? What we don't see. So I was sharing this with my wife after that service that day. I said, isn't that amazing, you know, honey? And, and, and I don't know if it had, didn't dawn on her completely, but as I walked back there, she's like, hmm, I don't know if I like that. You know? And I go, I know, isn't that funny, though? I go, so Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. You want to be more hopeful? Write that down. Study this verse. It says, we can rejoice too. It says, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So what is the progression of hope? Did you follow that? Trials produce endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope that what? Hope doesn't disappoint. You go, yes, I want more hope. And then you go, God, give me more trials. Amen? Yeah, yeah. And that's like that, you know, Lord, is there anybody else up there? I mean, is that, you know, and I get that. You go, but isn't that amazing how God does that? See, it's like everything flipped upside down. The very thing that you wouldn't think would be the way that God would do it is the way God does it, right? So many things in Scripture. Like you, We look at that. You ever read a Bible story and go, I wouldn't have done it that way? That's great. I hope you say that often because what, what does that declare? I'm not God. That's good. You go, yeah, I wouldn't have done it that way. And God's going, really? How would you have done it? You know, and you tell him, that's why you're you and I'm God. Trust me, you know, in that, in that regard. We examined the second you know, aspect was humility. I shared with you, you know, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And, you know, you, you can't read the story of Daniel and, and not know that Daniel had a high self-esteem. I mean, he, he, he knew that he was smart. I mean, he's the one who said he was good looking. It wasn't like he, you know, somebody else said, hey, Daniel was good looking. Daniel's writing the story. He's Daniel's good looking guy, really smart, smarter than everybody else. You know, it's like John, I shared the John, the disciple whom what? Jesus loved. Who wrote that? Wasn't Peter, right? I mean, it was John. God doesn't have a problem with us having a high sense of, of worth because guess what? As Peter writes, you weren't purchased with silver and gold. You were purchased with the very blood of Jesus Christ. And what does that make you? A priceless treasure to God. Oh, to God, that you and I would see ourselves through his eyes and not our own. That's half of our problem. James 4, 6 puts it like this, says, and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Larry Osborne, in his book, he wrote, biblical humility is not synonymous with low self-esteem. 
the Bible actually commands us to have an accurate assessment of our strengths and weaknesses. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and we're not to think more poorly of ourselves than we ought. Instead, we're to gauge our gifts, abilities, strengths, and weaknesses with sound and sober judgment. Jesus was humble. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, but he claimed to be God. I mean, he made a claim, I'm God. You go, well, people would say, well, that's not very humble. But it was true. He was who he was. He, he had a proper assessment of himself. And, and for that, in the truest sense, that's what he was killed for, who he claimed to be. They didn't, they didn't crucify Jesus because of what he did. They appreciated the fact that he helped people, that he, that, you know, he healed people. It was because he declared himself to be equal with God. He declared himself to be God. You know, they, they saw that as, you know, that he wasn't humble in that. So again, you know, humility isn't a lack of ambition, nor is it downplaying your accomplishments. But it is this. Biblical humility is being willing to be overlooked. And Daniel was willing to be overlooked. And in our world today, I mean, how many selfies do they say a person takes on a day-to-day basis? I mean, some ridiculous, you know, number. We, we are a self, why do they call it selfie, right? I mean, we are a self-consumed, you know, population of people today. And, and we wonder why the world is suffering in the sense, the way that it does, because as scripture says, God does what to the proud? He resists the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. Yeah. And so, you know, again, and I love what he, Larry writes in the book, he says, it doesn't insist on public honor or acknowledgement. It doesn't uh, trumpet status or accomplishments in an unnecessary or unseemly manner. But that's not the same thing as hiding or artificially downplaying our successes. After all, the only reason we know all the great things that Daniel did is because he wrote a book to tell us about it. Apparently, God was good with that. He put it in the Bible, and now it's serving others at its core. Biblical humility is simply serving others by putting their needs and interests above our own. Isn't that what Philippians 2 tells us? It's treating others the same way we'd treat them if they were someone important, that we'd treat all people that way. So it's in, a, in the book, you know, Daniel, we can learn, like I said, a lot about pride. We can learn a lot about humility. You know, obviously, Nebuchadnezzar's pride and then the humility that followed it. That's what's so amazing in that story. You know, I mean, you know, he ends up, you know, out in the field doing what? You know, acting like a cow. God told him it was going to happen, right? You'd think that he would have just humbled himself, but no, what does he do? He walks out, you know, and it says in a year later, he's, I mean, God is gracious. God is merciful. God is kind to sinners. And it says that King Nebuchadnezzar's out, you know, and he's looking out over, you know, his, his, you know, land and, and all that he has. And he's like, well, look what I made. Look what I did. And then boom, suddenly, what does God do? And he has him out in the middle of a field eating grass like a cow. And he humbles him for a season of time, but he didn't do it to destroy him. And we forget that about King Nebuchadnezzar. He, did, he disciplined him to do what? To restore him. And then Nebuchadnezzar, as he comes to his senses and he recognizes how good God is, then he makes and he declares things to be right in his life. Look at this in Daniel chapter 4. You don't need to turn there, but I read this to you. It said, upon hearing this, Daniel, also known 
as Belshazzar says, was overcome for a time. He was frightened by the meaning of this dream. It says, and then the king said to him, Belshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream, but what it means. And, and Belshazzar replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies. And so you see, you know, even Daniel's heart, like I said, his attitude towards a king who's hauled him off into exile and all the things that he's done in torturing him and, you know, uh, you know, subjecting him to changing his name, you know, putting him in classes, you know, studying the occult, all these things that were a direct affront to who he was and what he believed. And he still wished the best for him. And you go, would we want the best? You go, no, we'd probably want his head on a silver platter. That's why we're studying Daniel's life and not your life and my own. It says, I wish the events foreshadowed in this stream would happen to your enemies, my Lord, and not to you. The tree that you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and the birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you, for you have grown strong and great and your greatness reaches up to the heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump, there's mercy, and the roots in the ground bound in a band of iron and bronze surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. This is what the dream means. Your majesty and what the Most High has declared will happen to the Lord, my King. So he's telling God said it, that what? That settles it, okay? He says, you will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass and you will live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and the roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again, and you will have learned that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. So what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? Does he humble himself? Does he go, oh my gosh, you know, God's going to do this. So God, you're right. I, I humble myself before you. It says, but all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. It says 12 months later. Okay. So you, you can't miss this, you know, in your life, in my life, in Nebuchadnezzar's life, the life of anyone. Is God merciful? Love is what? What did Paul write in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. You see the patience of God here. Okay. It says 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat of his the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And as he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. What does he say? By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display what? My majestic splendor. Does it appear that he's humbled himself at all? No. And it says, yeah. and the, you ever seen this happen like in sports? You know, they go, man, this guy, I mean, he hasn't thrown an interception and, you know, he's doing, you know, and then what happens the very next play? It's an interception. We go, no, don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. Just be humble. You know, you, I like the thing where I was watching one the other day, a guy's running a track meet and he, 
he passes everybody and he turns to the, his competitors are next to him and he, he, he gives the peace sign and then immediately trips over his feet and tumble off. He saw that or not, you know, there, and there are all kinds of them like that. Pride goes before what? A fall all the time, right? It's over and over, but God is merciful. He's merciful. It's not for destruction here. So, so he says, while these words were still in his mouth, that's what I love. He said, yeah, I'm so, and then it says, a voice called down from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You'll be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat the grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass, and you will live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone who chooses. God, yeah, God chooses. And it says in that same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. After this time had passed, the time that God said, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. That's the place to look, okay? He says, my sanity returned, and I praised and worshiped the Most High, and I honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. Has Nebuchadnezzar seen it right finally? Yeah. It says, he does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as the head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Does that just show you the goodness of God? I mean, does God give us what we don't deserve? That's grace, amen? Nebuchadnezzar you know, received that. Look what it says in verse 37. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. And he doesn't do it, like I said, to hurt us. He does it to help us. God's a blessing God. He wants to bless our lives. We're the ones that get in the way, thinking that we're something or that it's because of our hand. We've accomplished this. And Scripture is, is perfectly clear. Everything that we have in this life comes from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift. Jesus said it best in you know, Luke 14, 11. Like I said, it, he says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. God has and he always will oppose pride. So Nebuchadnezzar exalts himself, he's humbled. Nebuchadnezzar what? Humbles himself with God's help and what? He's exalted, yeah. I mean, if there's one attitude that will make God your enemy faster than anything, it's pride. Would you agree with that? Pride. And the only cure for pride is repentant humility. Yeah. And so that brings us up to today, wisdom. Wisdom. Like I said, what is wisdom? Well, knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is the application of those facts. You know, Solomon, remember, he didn't pray for wealth or riches. He prayed for wisdom. God, just give me what I need to 
manage your people. And God said, Solomon, because I told you I would answer anything that you pray. You didn't pray for long life. You didn't pray for prosperity. You didn't pray for all the things that we all pray for, right? As he came back and it's like Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's prayer, hallowed be thy name. You want to succeed in this life? Learn how to hallow God's name. That's Daniel right here, hallowing God, revering God, fearing the Lord. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. And so again, before we can understand, you know, how the fear of the Lord leads us to wisdom, we got to understand what does it mean by fear? Some of us would say, well, it means fear of judgment, right? And that's true. If you're a non-believer, it should be the fear of God's judgment because it's appointed a man to die. And then what? Judgment. That's what's going to happen one day. But really the fear that the apostle Paul had, the fear that the disciples ultimately developed in their life, the fear that Daniel had was what we would call reverential fear. They revered God. They, they respected God. They loved God. And the last thing that they ultimately wanted to do was to disappoint God or to hurt God, to do anything that would hurt the heart of God. Proverbs 1.7 says, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. You ever had somebody try to help you and you said, I want to do it my way. And your way didn't work. You know, and then they like, do you want help now? You know, that's pride. Again, kind of in the sense going before a fall. See, a, a wise person, you know, when we talk about fear or reverence, it, it has to do with what? Obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, he goes the other way with it. If you love me, he said, you'll what? You'll obey me. You'll do the things that I'm telling you to do. But a fool despises God's instruction. And none of us want to say that we're foolish, but there's areas of our life today where we live foolishly. We're acting like fools because God's word has clearly given us a directive as to what to do. And we're going, mm, you know, and we'll say things like, well, nobody does it that way or everybody that, you know, and we know what God's word says. It's like, I always love that, that quote. Um, you know, how's it go? Um, oh, I was, I'm, I know the quote I'm trying to think of, um, um, Mark Twain. Yeah, it was Mark Twain. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that worry me. He goes, it's the parts that I do understand that worry me, right? Because again, there's sins of commission and there's sins of omission, right? I mean, you know, again, and it's, and I think we commit more sins of omission than we do actually even of commission. There's just things that God has called us to do and we fail to do them. And it's not because we, oh, I set out to do the opposite. It's like, no, we didn't pay attention when he said to do it. We just forgot. Have you ever Somebody told you to do something, you just forgot. You go, well, I didn't set out to do it. It wasn't a sin of commission. It was a sin of omission, right? We were having so much fun with our, our youngest, well, not our youngest, one of our, our grandkids. It was uh, Audrey. And uh, Audrey was going around and, and whenever you know, we'd tell her to do something, uh, she'd try to get somebody to help her. And she would look at him and she'd go, teamwork, teamwork. And I got this idea and I thought, oh, this is so awesome. So I want to give this to the men today that are here. This is for you men. So my wife, you know, she says to me, 
She goes, honey, why, why did you leave that like that? And I go, what do you mean? She goes, well, you know, I, it was there and then I had to clean it up. And I go, honey, teamwork, teamwork like that. And she knew because she'd heard her and we both, you know, laughed. And that's why I said it. I thought, man, that'll preach, man. That, that, so when you're going to, you know, guys, when you're going to get in trouble, you forgot to do something and your wife comes and she puts the hammer down, you just put your fist out, you know, give me honey, give me bumps, go teamwork. We're a team. No. But, you know, this is, this is the thing. It's that we go, God wants it. He wants teamwork with us in that regard. But a fool, he says, despises instruction, can't be told what to do. And, and yet the Bible is explicitly clear that the beginning of, of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's the foundation. So when you think about it, Jesus talks about a foundation. We remember the story in the New Testament. He said there was two builders, right? One person built their life on the rock, right? And he said, when the winds came and the rains came and the floods came, that, that home stood, right? But the home, and again, what I love about that story, if you know anything about construction, it wasn't that one fell because it, they used the wrong material. They used the exact same building materials. They had the same lumber, the same nails, you could say. All the supplies were exactly the same, but one fell and one stood. And you go, why? You go, because one was built on the rock. And who does scripture say the rock is? Jesus. Yeah. And the other person built it on the sand. They did it what? They did it, you might say, the Frank Sinatra way, right? You did it your way, right? I did it my way. And you go, and then it leads to a crumbling. And so many of us, I mean, we wouldn't even really want to admit this. You go, but much of our day is spent not with God's will, not thy will be done. We're doing what we set out to do. We've set our plan. We've set our agenda in this. And you, and you go, God, why can't I just get ahead? Why can't? And you go, because God resists the proud. You, you're not this blatant, openly proud person. In some senses, it's worse than that because it's in our heart. And it's before the Lord. He's whispering to you and he's saying, hey, this is what you need to do. Here's what my word says. The Holy Spirit is, is a gentleman. The Holy Spirit's working in our lives. What did Jesus say of the Holy Spirit? He won't speak on his own initiative. He'll only do what? He'll only bring to, to mind the words that I've spoken. And he's quickening the word. And you know it just like I do it. And God's word quickening. Yeah, I don't want to do that. I, you, you hear it, but we what? We resist it. And what does scripture tell us? Not. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. Don't resist him. Go with him. So this is something that, you know, is in all of our lives as well. And so th this link, you know, between the fear of God and the wisdom means that, you know, we can't, you know, possess wisdom if we create God in our own image. That's what happened in Romans 1, right? They traded the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God for sensual, earthly, because it was pleasurable. It's what I wanted right now. And what happens in that? You go, it's a terrible thing. Ultimately, leads to destruction. You know, until our hearts, I think we'd all agree with this, are in right relationship with God, we're incapable of enjoying the wisdom that comes from heaven. That's what James says, James 3, 13 through 18. It says, if you are wise and you're living an honorable life, doing good works with humility that comes from wisdom, it says, but if you are bitterly jealous and therefore is, that is selfish ambition in your heart, he says, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder 
and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving. So you can see it's so different than what we would say the wisdom today in our world. Let's hear what he's saying here again. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. Okay, so we need wisdom to navigate today, right, through the world in which we live. He says it's also peace-loving, gentle at what? All times, and willing to yield to others. Is that the wisdom that you're seeing? Even exercised in the church today at large? You know, probably not. It says it shows no favoritism and is always sincere, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Yeah, wisdom, you could say, you know, is a sign of maturity, and it has nothing to do with age, okay? Daniel is a young man, but he exercises tremendous wisdom. You know, I always love this from the book. He says, one of the telling marks of immaturity is a lack of perspective. And that's one of the, the key points in Daniel's life. He had a tremendous perspective about life, right? And you would think that comes with age. Some of it has. Some of us that are older here today, we have a different perspective about life because life has given us a different perspective. But what about when you're young and you have this amazing perspective? Where does that come from? That comes from God himself. Again, you know, and I love this in the book. He says, one of the telling marks of immaturity is a lack of perspective because waiting is not an option, okay? And he goes on, he tells a, a story about a child there, but I put it like this. I said, example, why is it when I present to two or three, you know, my two-year-old, my three-year-old or four-year-old grandchild, the choice of, you know, Chick-fil-A, some candy and a trip to Disneyland, or you guys could have the keys to a brand new car when you graduate from college. What choice do you think my grandkids make? If I say, uh, today, I'll give you Chick-fil-A, some candy, and we'll go to Disneyland. Or if you're willing to wait till after college and you graduate from college, Opa, I'll give you the keys to a brand new car. How many of my grandkids have said, I want the keys to the car? None. You go, why? Because they lack wisdom. Yes. More than anything, they lack what? Perspective, right? In a word, they lack perspective. And I, I like in the book, he said, they're, they're at an age where they have no ability to see the big picture, comprehend the long range consequences of their decisions. No child does. In the, in the same way, you know, it's no big deal. You know, then in that sense, if you take that analogy, apply it to non-believers. It shouldn't be any big deal that, that non-believers lack spiritual perspective. Would you agree? Because they're like immature children. They, they have no relationship with God. They don't have the knowledge of God. They don't have the wisdom of God. They can't have the perspective that Daniel had as a young man. And I like what he, Larry wrote in the book. He says, when long-term, long-time Christians lack the wisdom of perspective, he said, something has gone terribly wrong. When we choose earthly treasures, we can't keep over heavenly treasures we can't lose, or we judge God's goodness by today's problems instead of Good Friday sacrifice we are demonstrating spiritual immaturity. Oh, no, that's powerful. It's profound. You know, one of the things that, that set Daniel apart is great wisdom is, you know, he understood where it came from. 
he knew, as I, I shared with you in chapter two, he knew that, that that wisdom came from God himself. And, and because he walked in wisdom, we see in Daniel's life, he never chose earthly security over heavenly treasures. Remember, Moses was the same way. You know, great examples you know, in Scripture. Daniel, you know, he never judged God's power and goodness by Babylonian, you know, temporary success. And he continually, Daniel did, he responded to the sinners that were around him with what? With a heart of redemption. You know, again, even after all that King Nebuchadnezzar had done to Daniel, what was Daniel's heart to him when he learned that God was going to judge him? He was like, King, please listen to me. Repent and turn from your sin. The same heart that the Apostle Paul had, didn't he? He goes, I, I would become an anathema. I'd become an anathema for my people. And then we look at the world today and how much hatred fills the heart of believers. And I, I think Jonah is such a great example. You know, God is sending us to the Ninevites. You know, that's the world around us. But we hate the Ninevites so much that we're willing to jump off ship and head in the opposite direction. And God, you know, comes along and swallows us up in some and spits us out right on the shore where he wants us to be. But there, there's so much that we can glean from this. I, like I said, this book can be so helpful and so convicting to us when I look at how the church world is responding to the world around us. May God give us the wisdom like Daniel possessed in order to navigate so we don't just survive the culture that we've been thrust into, but that we could thrive in these moments in which we live. You know, I mean, you think about it, you know, Daniel, his friends taken by force, but they never, never, you can't find one thing in there where they lost sight of the big pictures. You know, again, how did Daniel respond to King Nebuchadnezzar? What do we read over and over? By the word of God, by the word of God, by the word of God. And that's, that's the option that we have. You can go, hey, you talk even to believers. Well, this is what I think. Who cares what you think? I mean, to be honest with you, who really cares what you think? Nobody. You don't even care because you change your mind. What matters is what God thinks, right? And what God says. And, and, if, and if we would just use the word of God, I mean, we think, oh, the poor person, they're just not walking with God. I, I want them to be saved. And I wish that they walk with God. I wish my kids, I wish my grandkids, I wish my nephew, my niece, my cousins, I wish, oh, I wish they, and you go, are you sharing the word of God with them? I'm not saying, did you talk to them? Are you sharing the word of God? His word is what? truth. How many Sundays in a row will I tell you? Jesus said, and the truth you'll know, and what? The truth will set you free. You know, yeah. Do people need to hear preaching? Yes. Yes. It's the heart of how we do it. You can share the word of God without yelling. You can share the word of God without pointing in their chest, but they will not come to Jesus without the word of God. It's impossible. There's nothing you're going to say that's going to bring them to life. It's the Holy Spirit enacting God's word in their life that they recognize that they're sinners in need of a Savior. And they will call upon who? The name of the Lord, as his word declares, and be saved. How are they going to know that? Someone's got to tell them. Daniel was willing to tell them. His, his wisdom, you could say, was rooted in the fear of the Lord. Daniel understood like Jim Croce's smash hit in 1972. You know, what was that That song? You don't mess around with Jim, right? You don't spit in the wind, right? You don't. Daniel knew you don't mess with God. 
You don't mess with God and walk away. He understood it. He understood it. And what a difference it made in his life. I mean, can you find anything as you study the book of Daniel? Did Daniel take the word of God lightly? You can see he was willing to do what? He was willing to give his life for it, right? He's like, you know, no, I'm going I'm to eat these foods. I'm not going to break, you know, my dietary, you know, beliefs. What I understand, you know, as a Jew, I, I'm going to, and I'm not going to quit praying to my God. You're not, there's, there are hills to die on, right? There are things, and there's other things that you don't. I mean, did, did King Nebuchadnezzar change his name? Yeah. I mean, to think of me, you know, to change his name to Bell's Prince, you know, that you're Satan's son in that regard. I mean, he could have said, that's a hill to die on, right? I'm a, no way. Did he make it a hill to die on? No. No, we probably would, right? Oh, that's it. Fight to the death. There are some things worth dying for. And then there's other things not worth dying for. Have you ever heard of somebody dying over something stupid and, and you know, and you want to be compassionate, but you're just going, what were you thinking? Well, obviously they what? They weren't. And oftentimes, even as believers, we're not thinking either in those, those instances, in those moments. I like what Larry writes in his book. He said, they understood the difference between sinning against God and being personally offended by something that they found distasteful. And Daniel never confused the two. I like what he wrote. He said, Daniel understood that taking the course in astrology is not the same as endorsing the course. Think about what's going on in our world today. He says, Daniel was forced to take a three-year course in astrology and the occult, and instead of sitting in the back of the class, rolling his eyes and mocking the teacher, he sat at the front of the class, and he studied hard, and he graduated with honors, earning him favor with the king and eventually the opportunity to introduce the king to the Most High God. And that is counter to what I'm hearing in the church today. And again, so it's a great, you know, read to go back and look at Daniel's life. He goes on, he says, and again, don't get mad at me, okay, please. Get mad at Larry Osborne. I should have got him your, his email address so you could have written him after the service. I like what he said, though. He goes, instead of boycotting the classes he didn't like, Daniel studied harder, earning the right to be heard. Daniel lived the saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Daniel lived his life growing and walking in wisdom, which gave him what? Biblical perspective. He had wisdom to understand that godless people live godless lives. Does that make sense? Godless people live godless lives. Daniel never forced his righteous lifestyle on the, the lifestyle of other people, but instead he rose to positions of power. And again, he didn't try to impose his walk with God on those who didn't know God. He didn't legislate it, even, even though he had the opportunity. He understood you can't legislate morality. It's impossible. He lived in a world of sin. It was all around him, but what? But he never lost perspective. And I think in many ways, the church today is losing its perspective. We're being sucked into a world's methodology, a world's method, a world's means, and we're losing sight that God is sovereign and that he's working behind the scenes in all these things. You know, for him, 
you know, in my notes here, he said, you know, the biggest issues of his day were not the eating and drinking habits of the Babylonians or the fact that they practiced the occult. I mean, those were things that he had to confront in his own life, right? The biggest issue that he faced in his life was people who didn't know God. And he didn't lose sight of that. We lose sight of it. We get caught up in all the minor things and forget these people don't know God. If, if they could come to know God, would that change the way that they live? Would it change the way that they looked at things? Would it change their perspective in life? And you go, yes, then let's major on the major thing. The key should be getting them saved, not fighting against the things that they believe in. Change it at the core, right? That's why Jesus said, when you have thorns and thistles that grow you know, amongst the wheat, what do you do? Did they, his, the, the laborers wanted to go out and do what? Immediately pull up the thistles, right? And what do they warn him? He says, no, don't do that, because if you do that, what are you going to do? You're going to pull out the wheat with the tares at that. Let them grow together, and then in the end, guess what? The harvest will take care of it. We're not that patient. And we're more like John the Baptist. We want a head on a silver platter, and we want it now. But thank God that he was patient with Nebuchadnezzar. Thank God that he was patient with me. Thank God that he's patient with you. Yeah. Yeah, so much. Like I said, I like what he writes. He says, we seek to impose our beliefs on non-believers, and all we end up doing is ostracizing ourselves. And instead of influencing an unbelieving world, the world simply puts us in the box that they've marked fanatic or Jesus freak, and then they close the lid. He says, most of us have heard the expression, they won the battle, but they lost the war. That happens when we lose perspective. Perspective is what helps us understand the goal in life isn't to win every battle we face per se, but to win the war that rages for people's souls. By trying to enforce our Christian values and sensibilities on others, we often forfeit the opportunity to introduce them to the one who could clean up their lives and forgive them of their sins. You know, I asked you a few weeks ago, you know, how big is your God? You know, I, I'd read a quote you know, studying perspectives, you know, that the children of Israel looked at Goliath and they thought how small they were in compared to the giant, or David looked at the giant and he thought how small Goliath was in comparison to his God. You know, we need God to change our perspective, and that perspective changes as we spend time with God. And that's what Daniel did. Daniel chose to focus on the size of God and not on the size of his problems. If we're going to influence the world, we need to do the exact same thing, you know, and how do we do that? You think of tolerance, right? Let me give you an example or thought on tolerance. If, if tolerance, you know, means this, granting people the right to be wrong. I like that. We need to be tolerant. We, we give people the right to be wrong. And we should be known for our tolerance. We, we can know, like I said, the truth and the people aren't walking in it, but we, we, we give them that right. We, we grant people the right to be wrong the same way that the Lord did that for us with the hope as we pray and we confront them with truth that there would be a change of heart, a change of mind, and then ultimately a change of will. I like, again, what Larry writes in his book. He says, when Christianity was the dominant cultural religion, he says, we often used our power. Think about this for a second. I'm going to close with these two thoughts. He says, when Christianity was the dominant cultural religion, we often used our power to shut down those who advocated opposing views and agendas. Can you think back when the church in the United States had that kind of power? We were a Christian nation, right? And we flexed our muscle. 
and we made non-believers bow to our belief. And we, we appreciated it. We enjoyed it. We said, hey, one nation under God, right? He writes, and we'd raise a fuss and a force, and we would force a college to disinvite a commencement speaker who advocated a godless agenda, and we'd pressure sponsors to stop advertising on television shows that we didn't like. We'd boycott non-Christian companies for making non-Christian decisions. Now, you got to understand, this was written before all this stuff started happening, so it's kind of interesting, you know, to me. And he says, you know, Daniel never tried to force righteousness on others. He earned the right to be heard by the way he lived his life. And isn't that what Jesus did? It says, and Jesus loved his own even to the end. And were they loving him at the end? No. Don't worry about what the world's doing, that we would love to the end. And again, quoting the book, he says, the wisdom to pick his battles prudently was one of the most important keys to Daniel's success and eventual influence in Babylon. While he was resolute in his refusal to sin, he was just as resolute in his commitment to overlook things that were merely uncomfortable, offensive, or demeaning. He knew there was a big difference between what he didn't like and what God forbade. And I love this. He says, he drew his lines in the sand where God drew his. He drew his lines in the sand where God drew his. And, you know, and so as I think about that, you know, exercise in wisdom, you know, and how do we thrive, you know, in the world in which we live is that we have to, you know, come to a place where you go, I'm going to draw my lines in the sand where God drew his. And that's going to take what? careful study of the Word of God, and then praying that God would give us the ability by His Spirit in those instances, in those moments. There's not, what my point is, as I look out, you know, and as many people are in the sanctuary, it's not going to be the same for any two people. And that's the beauty this morning, that we have the Holy Spirit living in us, right? And you're going to be in front of people this week, you're going to be dealing with people, and there's going to be things that you, and you can't just have a pat answer. Isn't that why sometimes we get frustrated with people that are part of the occult when they show up at your door? Because they have a pat answer, right? Most of them have cue cards. If you ever see, even if they use a Bible, uh, I've met with many in my office and I'm going, Hey, what do you got in the middle of your Bible there? They have, they, you'll open it up and they've got a, they taped it inside. I mean, this one kid did this like perfectly, cut the pages out to be the exact as the Bible, but he kept flipping it. I could see it looked like I was like, what are you doing? He didn't want to show me. I go, you're trying to act like you're just reading the Bible, but you're not. You stuck these pages in your Bible and you taped them in there. They were pat answers. See, the beauty of it is, just like Daniel, you can imagine the fear that you'd have. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, right? And he's saying, you either interpret the dream or you die, right? Imagine, you know, Daniel at that moment. You know, it's like, where was it going to come from? You know, I mean, you go, <laughs> we do this like, man, that was really good. What did you say? I don't know. I was just quick on my feet right? And people do that. Whoa, that was really good. You talked your way out of that. Is that what Daniel did? No. He got a word from who? From God himself. And God wants to work that way in all of our lives. Now, not, not the, a, a word, you know, we have what we'd say the canonized scripture, right? We have a closed canon. We have, we have a Bible. God's not going to, there is no interpretation of scripture that's 
you know, he says common to man. So there's no, nothing new. God's not going to just give you something that you'll, where'd that come from? No, he's going to quicken the word of God, the word of God, the word of God, the people to be able to share that. But that's going to come from what? Like Daniel, that we would hide that word in our heart. I've hidden your word in my heart. The psalmist declared, so I won't sin against you. And then walking in that word, because otherwise what you're doing, and I want you to think about this as, as we prepare for communion. Otherwise, what you're going to do is you're going to talk to people. You go, well, you know, I'm, you know, it's like, it's like earthly wisdom, right? You know, it's like, hey, I really like talking to that old, that's that old man wisdom. You know, I, you know, I've lived a long, you go, and, and there's value in that. But Daniel was a young kid, but he didn't have sensual earthly wisdom. He had wisdom that came from where? From God himself. And we celebrate in communion today, Jesus died for us. We take this bread. And we recognize it was his body that was broken for me and for you. And it was his blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. And it's not just that we go, okay, it was for the forgiveness of our sin. Yes, it's all those wonderful things. You go, but the, the greater blessing is, the, is what communion, what it provides for us. Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. That's what we celebrate in Easter, the resurrection of our Lord and our Savior, right? And then, and then Jesus said, and I'm going to pray. And not many days from now, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's not just going to be on you. He's not just going to, you know, convict you of sin and remind you of things that I've said. He goes, he's going to be with you, and he's going to be in you. And you're going to know my presence because I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Daniel didn't have anywhere close to what you and I can have today that's in Christ Jesus. He's in you. The very God who created the heavens and the earth, his power is available to me and you today. So we have to ask ourselves, you go, do I have that? I don't know. The more important question is, do you want it? And if you want it, that you'd receive it because it's a gift that he offers to you. You go, God, I want to walk in wisdom. I don't want to walk in what this world has for me. I don't even want to walk in what, you know, I see happening in the church world, you know, community today. I want to walk with you, God. I want you to lead me just like you led Daniel. I want you to speak to me just like you spoke to Daniel. And does he promise that? Yes. Yes, he loves you. It's not just corporately, individually. He loves us. He loves you. And he wants to lead and he wants to go. And so he says, you immerse yourself in my word and by my spirit. I will quicken that word when it's needed in that moment because my word is alive. My word is living. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to pierce you know, to the very core of a person's being. And we'd allow that because what does it do? It brings life. It brings nourishment. It brings conviction. It brings about repentance. It brings about restoration. Everything that this world needs, God provides. Daniel believed that. Question begs to be asked today to me and you, do we? My hope is that we do. Amen. And so with that, you know, I'll invite the, the worship team to come up and you that'll be passing out the elements. So come on up and let's just close with just enjoying a moment with the Lord. Just like Daniel, just thank God that he's with us today. Amen. Thank God that he's in this place. Thank you, Lord, that you're here, that you love us and that you forgive us and you make a way where there's no no way. I mean, think about it. the world doesn't make a way that we can be forgiven or restored or redeemed, but God does. 
and then to leave this place today to go with God. Go with him. Know him. Enjoy him. Walk with him. Like I said, as Augustine would say, love God and do as you please. Because everything that you'll do when you love God is you want to please him and you'll seek him with that desire. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for just a moment in time where we can stop and, Lord, just afresh recognize you as not just the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but as the Son of God who loved us and came from heaven to this earth and who lived a perfect, sinless life, was the perfect model, perfect example of everything that God is. And you humbled yourself to the point of death upon a cross. And therefore, you have a name that's above every other name, that at your name, the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you're Lord. And so, Lord, thank you that you've opened our eyes to that. We didn't figure that out on our own, but, Lord, you made it possible. And, Lord, we just appreciate that. Thank you for your peace, Lord, that surpasses even our own understanding today. May it fill our hearts and our minds in this moment where we just set our hearts to love you and to worship you. God, meet the needs of every person here, all that would be watching at home today. God, be glorified in our lives. Be magnified. That is our hope. That is our prayer. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.